Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Consumption Smoothing Edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as usual, by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello. Hello. And Rachel Schneider. Hello. Hello. Rachel um, is a published author. I have your book sitting in front of me. What is it called and what is it about? It is called The Financial Diaries, How Americans' Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. And it's really the stories that arise out of research that I did with a professor at NYU named Jonathan Wardock. And we talked to 235 families um, and gathered information about their financial lives over the course of a full year. This is every single penny that people spend. It's an amazingly detailed and granular data set. And we will dive into it very shortly. We are also going to be talking about a firm, which is Max Levchin's... um, not so new anymore, company where um, he's doing some interesting things with with financing purchases. We are going to be talking about some of the information which is trickling out, at least about 30 different cities, and how much they're bribing Amazon, basically, to, um, to, to get Amazon to place its second HQ in them. We are also, if you're a Slate Plus listener, going to answer all of Jordan Weissman's questions about cross-currency basis swaps. <laughs> I'm, it's going to be a guide for the perplexed. Um, namely, I am the perplexed, and Anna's going to guide me. This is, this, is going, this is going to be like a semi-regular segment on Slate Plus where Jordan says, I read something in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal and I don't understand it. Please, Anna, explain it. It's my own little mission Torah. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's start with the financial diaries because Rachel's here. Um, you didn't concentrate on like the poorest Americans. You kind of took a pretty broad swathe. And it turns out that even if you're solidly in the middle class, and even if you have a full-time job, you can still wind up with unintuitively enormous fluctuations in, in monthly income and cash flow. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, we... Um, we were working with people that one of the criterion was everybody had to, every family had somebody who had a job, right? So this wasn't a study about what is happening with people who don't have jobs. It was a study about working people and trying to understand what's happening in their lives. Now they weren't, um, upper income people, right? The, the band we were working with was, you know, from the poverty, poverty line up till about two times the poverty line, which is around the area median. So it's, you know, people. So what's that in dollars for a household of? Um, now I'm jumping ahead to the numbers section, but the um, median household income in the U.S. is fifty nine thousand for a family of four. So, and uh, um, what's twice the poverty line? It's roughly around there. Like it depends where you're talking about. The poverty but, line is generally about half median. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So not 
by any means rich, but certainly not. I mean, given the millions of Americans who are below the poverty line, we're not talking about them. Exactly. And obviously, a lot of these Americans have to pay the rent and other major expenses and medical expenses and stuff. But it's not just that unexpected large expenses can land in your lap at any time. It's also that your income, even with a full-time job, or especially if you don't have a full-time job, can just have huge variance. And that's not easy to cope with. No. And that was really the most um, salient, the most sort of critical finding here, right? So we we tracked um, people's monthly incomes. And in five out of 12 months in the year, on average, families had huge spikes and dips in their earnings um, over, you know, at least 25% more, 25% less than the average. So everything you think about like how somebody would budget goes out the window, Right. You, when you think about budgeting, you tell somebody to figure out their monthly earnings, subtract their monthly expenses, only spend the, what's left. Right. But in five months of the year, that would have been nonsensical for the families we were talking about. And is that something which um, it's even possible to, to budget for? I don't think so. I mean, I think the math, like when you start then thinking about what we know from behavioral economics and the extent to which people are good at making decisions and good at estimating the future and um, assessing variability, then I think no, right? Because I think if, if someone hasn't read your book, their response might be, well, if you know that you're going to have this variance in your income, why don't you spend less in the months when you make less? And, and why why is that not the case? And people do that, right? So we definitely saw spending go up and down with income. And, and, um, and we saw really creative strategies for how to manage it. So in the book, we tell the story of a woman named Becky. And what she does is when her, her husband has spikes in his earnings because his job is commission-based. So he works full time, but the amount he makes still has wide swings. And so in the months that he earns more, she stocks the freezer, right? She is like a pantry full of toothpaste. She's like, she says like, I'll never need to buy toothpaste again. We're good. (laughs) But, and she says, what she says is it's just really hard to save in cash. And I can't go to the movies and pay with a pork chop. So, right. So to me, it's, it's really this human, like understanding what it means to be human. Like, yes, absolutely. Save, budget, borrow. But really, like we don't really do that. You have this kind of great concept you talked about at the beginning of the book called the great job shift. Um, and it was sort of something that when I read it, it was like, oh, this should have been obvious to me. But it, it and, and I'll explain why in a second. But basically, it's the idea that used to be when you had a full time job. You also had a regular income, like you had a factory job, your income was, you know, you had your hours and and it was consistent. Um, And as we've moved away from that part of the economy and we have more people just working for tips in the service industry on sales commissions, that we've had this spike in volatility. Now, our our financial lives are less ordered, um, less predictable, like you say. And we've been seeing, I mean, you see stories about this constantly. You see stories about Starbucks employees with these weird schedules where they, at McDonald's workers who, you know, they get called in for these shifts and then suddenly told to go leave. And there's just so many, or, you know, Walmart pioneered this. There, There's so many signs of this all around us that we should have kind of realized, yeah, this is what middle-class life is, but we still hold on to this idea that once you have a job, that middle class, you should have a sort of consistent middle class life. And you're saying, no, it doesn't appear to be the, the case at all. So I guess what I'm kind of wondering is just how much of this has just been, how much of this can we kind of just blame on like technology? How much of it is just about the fact that companies have gotten too good at programming um, their workforces for like down to the second savings? I think that is a huge source of it. So I went to business school, right? We can debate whether or not that was a good use of money <laughs> offline. But but when I went, the big thing that was so, was being touted as amazing, good, wonderful was just-in-time manufacturing, right? Yeah. Like this was a huge trend in how companies thought about their productivity and their competitiveness. What you don't think about when you hear just-in-time manufacturing is that means just-in-time labor costs. Yeah. That's what that means. That means I'm going to send people home when I need to make fewer cars. And so what's happened really is, you know, a, sh- um, a shift in the risk in demand for services from the institution that was designed to be able to weather that risk, right? That's what a corporation is designed to do. Um, and shifting that risk down to individuals so that so they this, So this is the big question which I have. And this is like the implication of what Jordan was saying. But, you know, um, I want to really nail it you did a survey of families now 
Has any, did anyone do that survey 20 or 30 years ago so we know whether anything has changed? No. I, I mean, this was really like difficult kind of research to do. And we were building off of similar research that was done in the developing world. And before that had been done, people weren't really trying to gather this deep of cash flow information. But what we do have is really good annual studies. And there are really solid analyses of how income volatility from year to year has risen dramatically. So in the last 40 years, income volatility year over year um, has risen by 30%. So that that actually goes against the simultaneous trend, which is a, a decline in social mobility, right? That there's this lots of talk about how it's harder to move from one social class to another. How How is that consistent with a spike in income, an annualized or annual income volatility? Well, that assumes that somebody has multiple spikes, multiple years in a row, right? But really what's happening is if one family has a spike this year, another family has a dip this year. And it's like the, the volatility is what's changing, not the likelihood that you'll oh, repeatedly right. move up and up and up, right? Yeah. I, there, there was another kind of small line you had in, um, that I thought was really interesting where you pointed out also that corporations' profits are starting to show more of this sort of spiking. Um, and it, it just made me think about how – like with seasons, right? And it's it's not – their profits aren't as smooth as they used to be. And it just made me think that we're kind of becoming this weird seasonal economy almost. The entire – like corporations' profits are moving up and down more than they, people's individual incomes. And that that creates a feedback loop. And it's kind of – it's kind of a scary thing. It just it, it's, it, it ta- it just the, makes you think of the entire economy as this very erratic um, – just ent- I don't know. It's not an entity, just system. It's- well, this was something I actually found kind of interesting to think of how things are changing. Because we have a tendency, I think, to think of like the kind of post-war boom to maybe 70s, 80s is like the normal because that's what we always reference. But what I'm actually wondering, because when you hear about this seasonality, it sounds very similar to if you think of like economic history, like pre a lot of labor laws where everything was entirely seasonal. So I'm kind of wondering if maybe the period we think as normal was actually the aberration. Yeah, I think that's that's really right. I mean, that that's my personal instinct. I'm not an economic historian, but yeah, we hold out the post-World War II decades as the benchmark, but they may have been an aberration in terms of economic security. That said, like, don't we want that to be the norm? And so what do we do right. to get closer to that being the norm? Yeah. And then I think right. that raises then the, the next question, which I think you do also address in your book about what are some of the products or some of the laws that could be passed to help this situation? Yeah, so much. So, I mean, you asked about, um, like, shouldn't people just save and borrow? Couldn't they do a better job at that? And I do think that the innovation that you see in fintech is promising here. I think we're going to get to a place where you can use data to give people personalized advice, help them make better choices. I think we're, you know, we're at the start of an innovation wave around that. Um, but for that to be successful, you you have to maintain the CFPB, and you have to maintain right. like you have to think about consumer protections as well, because some of that data is not going to be used for the good of the consumer. Um, some of those predictive analytics are not going to be designed to help you make the best possible choices. Right. Very often. Yeah. yeah. I have a question about incomes. We are seeing in the labor force data finally incomes rising, which is good. But let's assume, I think, a reasonable assumption after reading your book, which is that a lot, if not all of that rise in income is a rise in what you might call precarious or volatile income rather than a rise in steady income. And I guess my question is, having studied these individuals and talked to them, what's like the exchange rate? Like how much how much money would I need to make on a volatile basis to make up for like $50,000 a year of like guaranteed steady income? Yeah, I love that way of thinking about it. I um I I'm sure that value that varies based on risk aversion, right? I mean, so so we had this family I was talking about, Becky and Jeremy, um or Becky stockpiles in the freezer. Ultimately, um Jeremy took a lower paying job in order to have stability. And how much of a pay cut was that? Oh god, I don't know. It's a good question. But I think um and when we when I've told this story, right, cuz I've been like talking about them a lot. Um some people in the audience always think, well, that's just stupid. Like, why did he do that? Right? Um, well, it's always because you can guarantee that you're going to be able to make <laughs> rent. I mean, right? yeah. but, but this is the other thing, right? It's It also is regressive in that 
if you're rich, if you have a nice little savings account with three months worth of spending in it, then you can totally afford to take a volatile income and it costs you nothing and you get to get that boost in income if there is like a premium to volatility. If you're poor, you can't afford to do that. Yeah, and worse comes worse, I mean, and worse than that, the poorer you are, the the smaller take change it takes in your income for it to be really volatile. The percentage a, a small change can be a big percentage of your of yeah, your paycheck. Exactly. And so you're more at risk for it, especially you know, if you're like a car dealer who relies on tips, like one of the people you mentioned in your book. Right. And also the the your stuff is likely to be more likely to cause you trouble too, right? Like your yeah. car is likely right. to have more need for repair. And it's likely that you're in a community where other people are in the same position. So not only is this easier easier to weather if you have a cushion, it's easier to weather if you know somebody who has a cushion. And I and I think this also speaks to how when you have more money, again, you can also you have easier access to low cost credit. You probably have, as you said, family members. It's a whereas the reality is the poorer you are, the higher your credit is going to cost, the less cushion you have, not just on your own money, but access to. Agreed. And, you know, we also um, should think about this in the context of what kinds of jobs people have access to and what kind of power they have in the workforce. So, you know, great. Jeremy was able to get a different job. Um, that's not always the case, right? If you rely on tips as a waitress, like um, it's pretty hard to Get yourself a secure wage. Yeah, there, there aren't very many like full-time, non-tipped waitressing jobs out there. No, exactly. So how do you trade your skill set for something that is going to be steady? And what negotiating power do you have to tell your boss, I need a minimum, a number of hours every week, um, which is something workers are arguing for across the country. But um, so far, it's not, you know, um, it's not an easy argument for them to win right now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Brilliant. Okay. So that is the perfect segue to, you were mentioning fintech and probably the single biggest thing that financial innovation that people use for consumption smoothing is the credit card. And if you do wind up with an unexpected expense, then what you do is you put that expense on your credit card, and then you can pay off the credit card over however many months or years, and you have managed to sort of amortize that expense in a way that you could afford to pay it. And not everyone has credit cards. And so along has come Max Levchin, <laughs> who has- To save us all. To, to save us all. I mean- I'm going to come out and say that I like Max. I think he's... We should probably say who Max is. One of, background. Oh, he, is, you know. he is the... Max is, let's say, the... The least weird of the PayPal mafia. <laughs> How big is the PayPal mafia? Obviously, you know, you got you got Teal and Musk, but then beyond that... And then, like, Reed Hoffman. Okay, he And, is. like, you know, there's a bunch of kind of, like, sort of spectrumy people. And, um... But the... But in any case, like, yeah, so, so Max was a co-founder of PayPal. Yeah. PayPal was obviously designed to solve um, payments questions primarily, just moving money around questions. And in a little way, his new shop, Affirm, is similar in that it's, it's trying to um, replace credit cards, I think is a fair thing to say, um, but with two big differences between what a firm does and how credit cards work. Um, the first big difference is that he is using a bunch of underwriting techniques which allows him to extend credit to people who don't have credit cards or couldn't qualify for credit cards. And the second is that everything is done on a purchase-by-purchase -purchase basis. So you really know how much you're spending each month or each paycheck to pay off, you know, the mattress that you bought or the pair of jeans that you bought or whatever it was, the item that you used the Affirm credit for. And so it becomes, 
it's, it becomes much more obvious like what your cash flow is. And then the other thing, of course, is that you don't wind up in that credit card trap of running this huge random balance which which accumulated on God knows what, and and you're just like you just have this debt. On the other hand, um, as an article in Racked, I believe, pointed so out this, this week. This is Susie Cagle, which we will link to. Great article. Uh, noted that it seems that retailers who use a firm suddenly see big spikes in their purchases. Yeah. So it's well, that's a, why. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what a firm is designed but, to do. So it, there's a concern that while you really do know exactly what you're paying, it may also just be, you know, su- not subsidizing, but financing needless and possibly uh, ill-considered consumption. Yeah, because again, even if you are paying off a very expensive pair of jeans, they seem obsessed with this pair of jeans in <laughs> yeah, this article. That's, well, it is rack. <laughs> yeah, they had to frame it. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So, So even if you are paying this off in an installment plan, you are still paying a pretty high rate of interest on this purchase. And you could potentially still, if you're paying it by installments, it's probably because you couldn't just afford to make this purchase. So these still could you could get you into some financial trouble. Certainly. And so this is the question which I have for Rachel, which is why I'm very happy that Rachel is here, which is um, you studied a lot of, um, you know, families on constrained incomes. I have this like gut feeling. I hate sort of spend shaming people i feel that people spend generally in in pretty rational ways and that like when middle class people turn around and said you spent how much on a pair of sneakers i'm like just like fingernails down a blackboard for me but is it is jordan's worry in any way like based in reality that like people just spend in stupid ways and if they only didn't spend in stupid ways and they'd have more money I'm with you on this. Like, I just, I can't go there because I think for the most part, people are really rational about what they spend. And to splurge on something is a human need and desire, right? So, and the idea that you would be perfectly disciplined about your spending all the time um, is like, you're going to be perfectly disciplined about what you eat all the time. Like, it's not fun. I So, I, I am typically not into spend shaming people either. I think the issue that people brought up with a firm, and I should say, it's like, an, I think it's what, they're, they're, average uh apr is like 19 percent or it's mm-hmm. a little it's not or it's not outrageous you know it's it they're they're charging rates that are above a credit card but well below a payday loan um but it seems to be that they are right now at least generally working with merchants who you know are selling option you know optional stuff their 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 goal is not to help you fix your busted car tire it's and actually I, I think right, right now well no i actually think this is kind of important because even in the article they they pointed out that they are really not targeting the people you were talking about. They are targeting what they called, which I actually think is, I don't like this term, the temporarily poor, by which they mean it's kind of like SoFi, that they're targeting people who have probably graduated from good colleges, are starting out in their careers. They may not have the greatest financial, like, you know, if you snapshot right now, but they have a lot of potential and they're probably less of a risk than they might appear to be so really they are not targeting the financially precarious i would argue they are targeting like college grads of like from good schools so that's that is where they started because they started in a very kind of you know millennial friendly techie way but they moved away from that pretty quickly um and what and their biggest area of growth is actually bricks and mortar stores rather than online spending their their big place where they started was mattresses mattresses are expensive people often don't have enough money to buy a mattress and yet you kind of need a mattress and so and you don't want a second-hand mattress so like you know there's a lot of demand and there's you could just get a casper mattress so you so you they they started with mattresses and that worked out quite well but then what they wound up doing pretty quickly which is fascinating to me is they moved onto the high street in relatively poor neighborhoods and they said and they went into a whole bunch of stores where any store basically selling stuff for over a hundred dollars um in a poor neighborhood if you're trying to sell something for over a hundred dollars people aren't going to have that kind of cash and so they were like yeah just at the checkout counter instead of not being able to buy it or having to put it on layaway you can just do it on this um a firm system and that worked out pretty well for them with like genuinely like poor neighborhoods not the sort of upwardly mobile college grad types and the problem with that um is that the interest rate is 
hidden. Um, the interest rate that you pay a firm is exactly what Jordan was saying. It's 19% or something relatively reasonable. But the merchant is also paying a firm a whole bunch of extra money out of the sticker price. And the sticker price, if you go into a brick and mortar store on a high street in you know a poor neighborhood, is going to be higher than the sticker price on Amazon or Walmart or something like that. And so there's like a hidden extra interest rate that you wind up paying, which is, built poverty in, which is built into the price. Right. Which yeah. that to me changes everything yeah. about this. I mean, I was prepared to be really excited about the structure of it. I mean, installment loans where you have a set payment over time and a clear understanding of exactly what you're going to pay are a dramatic improvement over payday loans and over credit cards in lots of ways. Um, but if then there's this hidden fee, then that seems, seems like a total bait and switch on that idea. And again, it doesn't totally surprise me though because unfortunately if you if you are lending to consumers that have potentially more volatile incomes you are almost certainly going to have to charge a significantly higher interest rate and and this is what the affirm people told me was that their default rates on these like brick and mortar stores in poor neighborhoods are you know significantly higher than that 19 percent interest rate would imply but because of the extra deal that they do with the merchants they get to um you know they get to finance it and these people get their goods and maybe it's worth it and maybe it's not and i'm i'm conflicted on this one well i feel like with credit the the constant problem is is better good enough right because and there's also conflation of two issues so on the one hand like this even with what you just described is a better product than a payday loan yeah right that's not not negotiable so so is it so that's an improvement in the marketplace and do we you know cheer for that and say great or do we spend our time saying well but it's still not good enough and that's that's continually the problem when you talk about credit innovation the other thing that seems a little problematic at least with firm right now is that its algorithm is constantly changing and some consumers are talking about how, okay, I was able to get a loan from you guys once, but now I'm getting denied and, you know, it's a point of sale. It's not something you can really predict. So it seems like as a solution to income volatility, this is kind of volatile or it could potentially be volatile. Uh, and so that kind of worries me a little bit too, if that becomes like a, you know, a credit card seems like at least, or I guess I, I, the question again is, you know, is the perfect, the enemy, the good, a credit card, you kind of know if you can use it for the most part, whereas with this, And, and often you wind up maxing it out and yeah. you can't, and you wind up in this debt spiral. And one of the interesting things about a firm is that it's overwhelmingly used for goods rather than services. Okay. And so it's actually a thing which you own which you are now paying off. You are still sleeping on that mattress. And when you pay your monthly thing to to pay off your mattress. You're like, yeah, this is my mattress. I'm paying it off. As opposed to, you know, I went out for some drinks and it went onto my credit card and I haven't paid off my credit card and those drinks are somehow still on my credit card three years later and what the hell, you know? Yeah, although the good you bought essentially, like, I mean, I guess you're using it, so it has value in that sense. It doesn't have any real, like, resale value. But um, although I will say going Back a little bit to what mm-hmm. you were saying with their um, their underwriting model. That's actually the part that I found interesting. That I because I do think we all know that the FICO model is so broken, and we need yeah. a better model. And part of what they were even saying in terms of when they were kind of describing the the way that this is structured, it is is a very dynamic model, and it does change constantly. It's using tons and tons of data points, and I actually think. That could be a good thing moving forward, but that also kind of adds to the black boxiness of it, right? Like, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's true. Why is why is black boxiness a bad thing? I mean, have we not like spent like episode after episode on this show talking about why algorithms that we can't see through and don't really know what their standards are for judging whether we're credit worthy are, are worrisome? I do agree, but I do think that the more kind of specific and tailored it is, like based on someone potentially someone's own like activity, then arguably, you could have less room for kind of more overt discrimination. Well, it's definitely, and and even not overt discrimination. I talked to them about disparate impact, and they are, you know, they, they definitely talk very strongly about caring about it, and they were on the CFPB advisory board, and, like, they are, they consider that to be a comparative advantage for them, that they are actually more ahead of the game on they reckon they're much better in terms of disparate impact than say fico is i think it would be good if we knew some metrics about how people actually um 
how this actually impacts people's financial health, right? So that's that's really the barrier that credit underwriting hasn't gotten to yet. So credit underwriting is designed to tell the lender whether or not you're going to pay back. It's not designed to tell whether or not this loan is a good choice in your life at all. Right? Th- that's what starts mm-hmm. to get to the consumption issue. So it might be that they have the best possible underwriting to figure out whether or not you're going to pay back your pants loan, right? But that doesn't actually give you as the consumer the information you need to decide, like, should I take out this loan in the first place? And presumably, you're, if you're designing a wonderful, brilliant algorithm based on the best possible data ever, you could do that instead of like stopping at this objective of just, am I going to get paid back? And, and it is actually possible that the people who got the first loan and didn't get the second loan ran into exactly that, that the, that the affirm, you know, omniscient algo machine was like, yeah, you, you, one was good, two is too many. It's, it's possible. But... And, and that's an important move. You know, I think it, it makes sense. This is the problem that everyone always used to have with payday loans is that, you know, one is fine two or three or more is just disastrous. And it's good to kind of cut people off at some point. But I think what Rachel is saying is that the people who get cut off should be told why they're being cut off, or at least told ahead of time if they're likely to get into trouble. Like if, if rather than just saying you've been declined, it's say you've been declined because you've had some trouble paying off X, X, and X. Yeah. And, you know, in the article, like a firm makes some noises in the direction of we would use this data to give people the advice and products they need outside of loans. That like that's fantastic if you get there. I don't know how close they are to that. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Okay. Who wants to talk about um, the way that municipalities around the world or at least around the country are just like prostrating themselves before <laughs> Jeff Bezos throwing throwing away all all remote attempts at democratic legitimacy and saying no you just you just get to be emperor of our town Mr. Amazon Rahm Emanuel pretty much just like got a really nice hotel suite in the Drake and like covered the bed in rose petals for <laughs> like it's just like it's really depressing like well, I mean that but you see, that's the actually the the un the less objectionable part. So okay, <laughs> okay let's... A, li- a little bit of rewinding. There has been I don't know how many thousand applications to a to Amazon saying from various towns and cities around the country saying you should build your HQ here. And thanks to freedom of information requests, we've seen about thirty of them now. And. So Rahm Emanuel in Chicago, his great idea was, well, okay, all of your employees are going to pay income tax, you know, Chicago income tax. And that's great for Chicago, except for what we will do is we will take all of those revenues and just give them to Amazon. Yeah, it's it's called an edge bond or something. It's This is a thing in Illinois. I had, I had never read about it before. The Chicago Reader was ran, has long written about these kinds of giveaways. The, the state really specializes in this kind of just foolishness. But, but you're right. That's not even the most embarrassing of the pitches that cities have made. It was, it's Fresno, I think, that just said, you can take we, you can tell us how to spend your tax money. Like whatever money that Amazon pays and, or gen, tax revenue it generates, you can direct us to like whatever. A par, you, you can have us build a park and we'll put a sign that says park brought to you by Jeff Bezos' shiny bald face. Like it's just, I, I, it's, I can't. But it's, it's actually even worse than that, that a lot of these offers are basically not an offer of we have a city and we would like you to build your headquarters in our city and much more we will let you build your own city and we will throw money at you and various other incentives to build your city but you will be in charge of your city and you get to make the rules yes and and it's deeply undemocratic in that it's not even the employee slash residents of the city which get to determine their own fate it's their employer and i feel like 
we haven't had one of those sort of company towns in um what like almost a hundred years now like that used to be a thing that kind of you would paternalist company town where the company would build all the housing and be in charge of everything and house its employees. Railroad and, barons really were fond of it. Like that, that was, like was a big deal. There yeah, was you a, got paid in company scrip. There was a great one in um, just outside Liverpool in England called Port Sunlight, which was built by Uni- by, by Lever Brothers before it became Unilever. Um, and they were ahead of their time. They were actually like good places to live and people had like relatively good lives. But like, I feel like we've moved on from that or should have. And yet. And yet. Although, to play devil's advocate a little bit, just, again, I'm not saying that this isn't, like, disturbing. I think it is, although I think it's more part of a a larger question about kind of the state of companies right now and just the discrepancy between when you work for certain companies, what people's lives are like versus when you work for almost any other company and why this is why people want Amazon to come so much because it's not just that Amazon will come with their employees and their investment. It's that that will almost certainly, if we've seen what's happened in Seattle, bring many other companies that will come into the town as well and really, you know, expand the tax base, increase the talent pool. There are a lot of very real benefits that people are looking for. And I would also argue that, again, I, I don't I don't think a lot of these what what these cities are trying to do is a good thing. I, I don't think it is. But I think to say that this is like this enormous threat to democracy may be a little well, overstated. I want to ask you to put those two thoughts together a little bit more clearly. On the one hand, yes, we understand that there are sort of residual benefits to having Amazon in your town. Um, great. On the on on the other hand, we also understand that having corporations have an outside say in how a town is run, as opposed to individuals, is inherently anti-democratic. What is the connection between the two? Why do you think that the residual benefits of having a corporation in your town um, in any way kind of mitigate the anti-democratic effects of what's on the table here? Because even if you are right now saying, "Okay, Amazon, we're going to allow you to." direct a certain portion of the tax dollars that you're generating. Again, at the same time, the city is still being run with the same democratic processes that it was before. No, that's actually not true. Well, that's, I, and that's that's the bit which well, is I, I, I know what you're saying, but again, what, I, what I'm arguing is that... I guess what you're saying is that the city that existed before Amazon showed up is at least being run, whereas like Amazon... If you right. think of Amazon as an adjunct to the city, the, it's like, I, I'm trying to... I think this is what you're saying, at least. If you think of Amazon as like a new city, just kind of like tacked on to Fresno, then the rest of Fresno is still being run just like before. There's no real change, except for there's this, you know, additional company town that's sort of on the edge of things. I My question is how how separate are those two things really going to yeah, be? Yeah, I feel like Amazon, basically what is being done here is that a bunch of cities have effectively gone up to Amazon and say and saying, we will not only give you money and space and tax incentives but we will actually give you the keys to city hall to a large degree as well yes but again i also don't know some of the like very like explicit details of how these deals are structured in terms of frankly the length and and the idea of you know if amazon were to come how much control they would actually potentially have long term I, i i honestly i don't think those deals have all been fully fleshed out but again i I, I do think the idea is that we. Sorry, I'm trying to think of. I I guess. I, oh, you wanna? Yeah, like I, I still think if you have citizens of Fresno who disagree with what is happening and they push back against the current government, I have a hard time to imagine that that isn't going to have implications for. Amazon and that they are literally creating just this new city that will have no restrictions on them based on other state and city regulations. I find that hard to believe. I, I, I don't find it that hard to believe because a lot of these deals, once they get made, are you know, they're enforceable by contract. Like you can't really go back on them. Like you can't you can vote out the mayor, but you can't vote out Amazon once it's there and it has its deal. I, I also think the way you're describing it is this, you know, a separate city aside from Fresno is is really like allows us to then connect this to our thinking about what's happened in cities that increasingly change their lines of incorporation for other reasons, right? So in Detroit, for example, where like gradually all the move money has moved to the suburbs and and so has the political power. And then what is the inner city left with, right? So 
in that model of like, well, won't the citizens just push back on this Amazon? Like, I think that's no, and it, that's I, and, hard for me to see, like in the context of what happens elsewhere. And, and I don't just, I, I, I agree right? with that. I mean, I, I think there, there's, I, I, I do agree with that. I mean, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I, though, I do think again, if you have Amazon come in. And Amazon then attracts a lot of other companies that are also coming in. I, I don't think you're necessarily just going to have Amazonville and then everything else. No, no, we're not talking about this. It is a possibility. It is a scary possibility. Um, it is also like invidious in the way that Amazon has set it up in this kind of Hunger Gamesy kind of yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, of like we are just going like. There's going to be a winner's curse, right? Yeah. If you have 3,000 municipalities all trying to outdo each other, then whoever wins that race is going to lose. Uh, see, I actually I don't entirely agree with that. but and it's because I think the towns that are making these offers, like the really tra- like shocking ones like Fresno, are probably going to lose this race. Yes. They, they, the reason they are making these offers is because they don't have enough to offer mm-hmm. Um you know, it's a little surprising for me to see Chicago because that's a city that a lot of people thought just on its kind of merits might be able to attract Amazon. But you know, again, you they're seen not the finances yeah, in yeah, Illinois. That, that's true. But um, and again, they're not they're not handing over City Hall so much as they are just handing over their the you know people's money. But um, what does worry me about this is it's sort of a huge demonstration to the rest of corporate America of just how much you can ask for like it's you don't even need to ask they will just give give it it to you you. and you might not be amazon but if you can you know show up and you know do your own rfp for like you know this it seems like i don't think this is going to be the last time a major company tries to pull this i think jeff bezos might be setting a template here and so that's why um this really kind of frightens me it's it's you know, okay, maybe Fresno's not going to hand over City Hall this time, but it might to another company. Can, and, can I just come in with like one little bit of good news? Like, what is the biggest, most powerful company in America? Probably right now, it's Apple, certainly yeah. in terms of market cap. Yeah. And um, they are not only in a big fight with Cupertino right now. They are losing are their they? fight with Cupertino. Is right it over now. parking? What is it over? <laughs> <laughs> what, is it, it? what are they fighting over at the moment? Well, yeah, they want, well, the problem with, they, they have this shiny, gleaming new campus yeah. in Cupertino and the problem is that there's nowhere for their employees to live because it's a very low-density neighborhood and um, yeah, they just need to house their employees and so they are proposing to build housing basically so their employees can live somewhere in the neighborhood and cupertino in classic silicon valley nimbyish family nimbyish um, fashion is saying no no you can't do any building we can't have okay, any but this is... and, and cupertino is winning that fight but that's like okay rich white people can like slay other rich white people like that's yes. <laughs> like what we're yeah. learning from that that's that's not a, a desperate city trying to attract uh, a new company it's a little bit different here there cupertino is already rich they don't need to worry about apple Plus, Apple just set down roots. It cannot pull up. Like, there is no... They are there. <laughs> they have settled. They Although, have, I do, and I do think that goes a little bit to support what I was saying and the idea that I, I don't think that if you have a company come in and generate a lot of revenue, a, again, a lot of potentially, like, ancillary jobs, that the people there will just inherently lose all political power. Because I think part of the problem of what you happened in Detroit was also that just everything all that like the the corporations everything moved outside of the city and i don't see that is exactly what we're potentially to see happening here this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance hey listeners whether you love true crime or comedies celebrity interviews news or even motivational speakers you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue right and guess what now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's have a numbers round. Okay, my, my numbers are silly, so I should just get it out of the way. It's an obvious one, but it's 10,000. Bitcoin broke 10,000. <laughs> Not that one. Yeah, so, oh. Okay, so wait, here's my question. Like, this is just Jordan asking dumb question. Like, as Bitcoin gets, like, this ludicrously expensive, does it become worse as a medium of exchange like shouldn't yes. it yeah it does it is becoming a it, it or no, are I mean, they figured I, I, out how to I, I don't think so okay I, I, I think that's in pretty much entirely orthogonal okay um like i transacted for bitcoin when it was five dollars and i transacted for bitcoin when it was three thousand dollars i haven't transacted for bitcoin since it's been ten thousand dollars but i could quite easily and it would be just as easy like um the amount of bitcoin you're spending obviously goes down yeah you know for any given dollar amount but other than that it's basically the same so this is kind of a blow to like the econ nerds who are doubting bitcoin back in the day because we all assumed okay it's got this big deflationary bias and that if it ever spikes in price people are going to sit on it and they're not going to want to trade any or sell any um because oh, that's definitely true okay that... if, if it's well it's not so much the price it's the price rise that yeah. if you, if the price is rising then people don't want to spend their bitcoin because yeah. they would rather see the capital gains from just sitting on it but the, but you're saying well, okay, but you're saying it's not that hard to transact in it, and it seems like there's enough liquidity right now. It seems like volume's actually getting higher as it gets. So, no, vo- volume in Bitcoin terms is falling a little oh, bit, but it? in dollar terms, it's rising. Okay, so maybe. Okay, I need to research this further to figure out if we've all been proven wrong or not. Stay tuned. Now, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, my it's very random what happened in Bitcoin, but just to explain for re- re- listeners who. Um, haven't been following this the crazy. And by the way, congratulations if you haven't, because there's no reason why you should. Um, it kind of spiked from sort of seven, eight thousand ish all the way up to about eleven thousand and then dropped back down to nine thousand. It you know, this is it lost twenty percent in one day, that kind of thing. It's highly volatile right now. Um, Bitcoin every 18 months or so goes through one of these periods of extreme volatility and then generally it kind of settles somewhere. And my base case is that the future will resemble the past and it will find some new higher level where it will settle and be relatively less volatile for a while. But right now it's super volatile. Hmm. Uh, Anna? Mine is 252,000 per second. That would be the number of transactions that went through the Alibaba servers. Um, Oof. That's, uh, that's, that's probably about, I'm going to guess, two orders of magnitude higher than um, transactions per second in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this was, this was on Singles Day, um, which is 11-11. And this, it just so much bigger than anything we would see on like a Black Friday or Cyber Monday. Because in, in, in total, it was $25 billion in one day on Singles Day. On one website. Um, I actually think that 20, I, I think that $25 billion may be from Alibaba and JD.com. I don't know if that's just, but the, the 252000 per second is just through Alibaba's servers. Still, that's giant. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, my number is $100 million which is the number of dollars that Chase has invested in Chase Pay, which is a technology which, as far as I make, can make out, about eight people have ever used. I've used it. <laughs> Someone paid me in it once. I was really angry because I had to like register my email for them to send me the money. Anyway, My was... family will not use Venmo. I hate checks. <laughs> I have Chase. There, there, are, there are a gazillion competing um, payments protocols out there. Venmo is a kind of, it's basically PayPal with emojis. Um, <laughs> but there's many others. There's Square Cash. There's Apple Cash is coming out any minute now. There's Chase Pay. There's um, Square and Stripe and, you know, a gazillion others. And I'm not quite sure why everyone is trying to build all of these clever digital payment rail pay, payment app la- layers on top of like the old antiquated creaky ACH and, and credit card pipes. But apparently this is things, this is the kind of thing that Chase will spend a hundred million dollars on. And I, yeah, it baffles me why. 
I'd rather them invest it than, you know, give that money to it as a dividend to their shareholders. So whatever. <laughs> okay. right, so that was some employees getting that, uh, that, that exactly. uh, yeah. as so, wages. So good enough. Yeah, exactly. Rachel, you got to finish off. I get the last one. All right. Uh, so true to the topic, I'm, I'm expert and I'll say my number is $400. Half of Americans um, cannot easily come up with $400 uh, without borrowing or selling something, which is a pretty scary number when you think about it. And so I've seen this number bandied around a lot in various different contexts. Does that mean that they don't have, as I understand it, that means they don't have $400 of credit on a credit card. That wouldn't count as borrowing. That, they, don't, they just don't have it in an emergency any easy way. They have, it means they don't have it um, like on cash on hand or saved. About an, another big chunk, another 30% say they can get that money if they borrow it. Right. So it's it's a much smaller percentage of Americans who just cannot get it at all. Fourteen percent or something like that. OK, so that's the way to think about it. But but like the idea that you wouldn't have four hundred dollars um, to your name if something came up is striking. Yeah, I just got a speeding ticket for almost that much. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which is why. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of expenses would immediately cause you to need that amount of money. OK, I think that is it. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming in to Slate Money. It's been absolutely amazing to have you here. Your book is The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. It is out now from Princeton University Press, those lovely people. Um, and thank you as well to Dan Schrader for all of his work on this. And most importantly, to everyone here listening, we still have space left on our voicemail machine the number is oh my god three four seven nine six oh six three one four that's in the show notes call us up leave us a question and we will answer it in a special holiday q a call in edition of slate money in later this month um so yeah so listen to el gabfest an Espanol from Leon Krauser. He's one of my um, Univision colleagues, and he has his own gab fest in Spanish. And that will not only get you up to speed on the news of the day, but will also help you with your Spanish. So listen to that. It comes out every Thursday. And um, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. <laughs> 